Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. And we're going to start on the campaign trail in New Hampshire today. Late summer might normally be a quiet time during this parade of presidential candidates that are coming through our region, but many Democratic candidates face a crucial test in the coming days either qualify for the next round of televised debates or risk losing relevance. That urgency is on display as candidates make the rounds, so we caught up with Josh Rogers, he's senior political reporter for NHPR, to get a sense of how this campaign has been a little different this time around. Josh, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here, John. We've talked with you in the past about the New Hampshire primary and all the candidates that come through. And in a moment, I want to talk about some of the top contenders, the people who generate a lot of national coverage But maybe we can talk about some of those candidates that you've been reporting on who are scrambling a little little bit. They're coming through the state and they're trying to raise money. They're trying to raise their profile and they're trying to get into this next round of debates. What are you seeing from some of these folks that maybe aren't going to aren't going to garner so much attention in a couple months? It was interesting. Over the weekend, there were nine of them uh, in the state, some who had qualified for the debates, others who uh, hadn't qualified then but had qualified now, uh, Julian Castro being one of them. But candidates like John Delaney, a former Maryland congressman who spent a lot of time in New Hampshire, Steve Bullock, uh, Montana governor, people in in their position, uh, Michael Bennett, senator from Colorado, they're scrambling to make the cut of the next debate or potentially uh, lose relevance as this field slowly winnows. And um the thinking is, is if you're not on the debate stage, you run a real risk of uh, being left behind. I mean, they would all tell you that they're going to continue to campaign hard uh, regardless. But the threshold for the debate in a few weeks is you know, twice as stringent as the uh, earlier threshold. I mean, you need 130,000 unique donors. You need 400 unique donors from at least 20 states. And you need 2% support in four qualifying polls. Which doesn't sound like a huge amount, but it certainly creates different incentives for how candidates act and different imperatives to potentially, you know, get on that stage. And I'm wondering how that's changing this primary season in New Hampshire. Uh, you quoted Bullock as calling it sort of like the Hunger Games, all these various tests that they have to pass or the hoops that they have to jump through. But the beauty of running in New Hampshire is the kind of retail politics, the hand-to-hand, going and meeting a whole bunch of people. Is that changing at all because they're trying to play all these various games and they're trying to get on this debate stage, not just here in New Hampshire, but also get more relevance around the country? Well, it's certainly changing. I mean, it, you could view the DNC criteria for debates as as a cause or a symptom. In some ways, you think it would be easier, but in some ways, it's it's harder for voters to distinguish who from whom you have a lot more activists here who would tell you, essentially, they're kind of playing the field. I mean, all the activists share the goal of defeating Donald Trump. They're not exactly sure who's best positioned to do that. 
And, you know, I talk to voters who say they might be giving small donations to six or seven of the candidates, which uh, several said they had never done that before. And part of that is to help them potentially qualify for debates. But part of that is that they don't really know who's likely to end up rising to the top. And, you know, it's important to remember that it is still early. I mean, certainly those candidates who aren't likely to make the next debate would tell you that it's ridiculous to uh, be winnowing the field six months out from when people in Iowa and New Hampshire are really going to be making the calls they're going to be making. But you have campaigns that uh, are a little less focused on rolling out endorsements and less focused on courting sort of the local gatekeepers that have historically you know, put themselves into the position of being seen as essential. You can... Um, you know, if you just were to tally up the number of candidates who roll out local endorsements, it's much fewer than in the past. I mean, some of this may be the digital nature of reaching voters. You don't need, you know, a allegedly influential state senator to help you deliver supporters. And it's also the case that the campaigns don't seem to feel they need the local media in the way they might have in the past. I mean, I've certainly received some phone calls and emails, oh, let's get together and get coffee, but less than in previous cycles. And you often sometimes are in a situation where at a campaign event, you have you know, a staffer who never comes over to introduce themselves to the local reporter saying essentially like, hey, buddy, get out of the way. We're trying to take <laughs> selfies here, which happened to me at a Beto O'Rourke event where it was like, oh, there's a lot of people in the selfies. We can't have reporters in the background there. So part of it's just a changing nature of, of campaign. You can reach voters more directly without the local activists filling a room. You can target people digitally. You can reach voters without trying to court favor from uh, local reporters to uh, you know emphasize this rather than that about your candidate. It's so interesting because I was going to ask you about all, all the ways in which it's different. It sounds as though this has been a different primary season than the others that you've covered. What are some ways, Josh, it's, it's been kind of the same, the things that are always happening in New Hampshire when it comes to a primary season that you're seeing once again this cycle? Well, I mean, you certainly see candidates trying to uh, connect with voters, trying to have, uh, you know, a certain amount of uh, genuine face-to-face -face contact with voters. I mean, you certainly have candidates showing up. I mean, there are no shortage of candidate visits. But for several cycles, these races do take place on the cable networks. And, you know, I was at a picnic over the weekend uh, put on by a local Democratic committee, and there were seven candidates there, and they all got up there one after the other and gave their, you know, eight-minute stump speech. And then they hobnobbed with voters a little bit, and then they quickly kind of hot-footed it over to a small tent where embedded reporters from two of the cable networks were there, and they were asked about how's Trump handling the economy, what do you think about tariffs. They were hoping to get those clips out there on the networks, which is not new, but it just was very stark. We were in this picnic in the middle of the countryside of New Hampshire, uh, very, you know, if you took a picture of it, you would say, oh, this is the kind of organic sort of New Hampshire campaigning we're accustomed to. And there was certainly some degree of that, but it was also make your speech, go over to the cable TV tent, and then head off to your next event. And, you know, one other thing that's that I would say is, is a little different this time is that, you know, the degree to which all the, and this is part of what Bullock was talking about with the Hunger Games comment, is that all the candidates are very conscious of, in a big field, they need to stick out. And the way in which they're trying to induce or produce viral moments on social media, you know, that's been going on, but it's a little new. I mean, it used to be the candidates uh, were a little bit uh, skittish about the unscripted moment and uh, worrying that this was going to sink them and seeming fake, inauthentic, 
you know, et cetera. Uh, now, when Andrew Yang spoke at this picnic, the first thing he said was, did you see the video of me jazzercising in South Carolina? <laughs> So uh, it is a little different, but, you know, we live in a world where everyone's got a camera. And so, you know, perhaps it's logical that the candidates are acting this way. Of course, a- another difference here is is you do, at the moment at least, have a, a top tier of candidates, people who've garnered most of the, the national attention. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, they are all, it should be said, older candidates who've been through this before. Two of the three of them know New Hampshire pretty well because they both come from neighboring states. How have those top three and maybe Pete Buttigieg and some of the other uh, top contenders, how have they been approaching New Hampshire this time around? Elizabeth Warren has been here a lot. I mean, she got in early and her campaign has seemingly been picking up steam here. She's been drawing a lot of crowds. Uh, You know, she's somebody who likes to say, obviously, that she believes the country needs substantial change and likes to really discuss issues. Joe Biden is coming this weekend. He's going to be up at Hanover Dartmouth College, and then he's going to be farther afield, kind of out in the country, really, uh, for a town hall meeting. He's been here a couple of times. I mean, he's He's campaigned here a bunch before. I mean, the two times he ran before, I mean, it may be worth remembering that he never made it, actually, to the New Hampshire primary in his two prior presidential runs. He's well-known institutionally, and um, Biden and Buttigieg will both be here this weekend. It'll be interesting to see Buttigieg as someone who generated a great deal of interest here. It's really hard to say. Like, on paper, obviously, Bernie Sanders won big here last time. He has sort of universal name recognition among Democratic activists. You know, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, those, you know, I guess if you're going to handicap this thing, they're definitely the top three in New Hampshire. But, you know, we really are still a long ways out. And even though voters here are familiar with all of those three, it's really hard to find voters here who will tell you that they're close to making up their mind. And some of that is the fact that we are a long ways from the primary. And some of that is, is that, you know, they all, pretty much everybody you talk to say, like, beating Trump is job one, and some would prefer a more liberal nominee or some would prefer a more moderate nominee to emerge out of the Democratic primary, but they all really want to beat Trump. And, you know, that seems a long way from being settled. Josh Rogers, a senior political reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio, covering the campaign that's coming through his state as it it always does every four years. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. If you want to hear a lot more about these candidates and what they're telling voters in New Hampshire, you can go to nhpr.org. You can also check out the NPR Politics Podcast, where Josh and his colleagues are working with NPR to profile the candidates. As Josh told us, it's an interesting time for local media in New Hampshire as they battle with national networks for time and attention. And increasingly, local media outlets are facing pressure of another kind, mergers and cuts at already depleted local newsrooms. A proposed merger of two giant newspaper chains, Gatehouse and Gannett, that's stoking even more fears. Combined, those two companies own more than 100 newspapers in New England, including the Providence Journal, owned by Gatehouse, and the Burlington Free Press, owned by Gannett. That paper's executive editor, Emily Stigliani, talked to Vermont Edition's Jane Lindholm. Up until the announcement, we had 14 positions in our newsroom, and we still have 14 positions. We're actually two of which are open, um, and so we are currently hiring. So if anyone out there (laughs) is a badass journalist who wants to come work with me and my team, um, I invite them to apply. In Massachusetts alone, Gatehouse owns 10 daily papers, including the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and the Cape Cod Times, both of which have had layoffs in recent days, according to Pointer. For a look at what further newspaper consolidation could mean, WBUR's Callum Borchers visited the city of Fall River, home of the Herald News. 
It's a warm summer night, and apparently most of Fall River has something better to do than sit through a city council meeting. There are only about a dozen people in attendance. One of them is Joe C. Good. She's a reporter for the Herald News, and tonight she ends up with a lot to report to the roughly 90,000 other residents who aren't here. Councilors are debating a public works project when an angry Mayor Jaisal Correa, who's been watching at home, suddenly makes a dramatic entrance. Excuse me, Mr. Mayor. Is there a reason you're just walking on the council floor uninvited? Mr. President, Mr. Mayor, sit. Mr. Mayor, sit back. You have not been invited to this table for discussion. Mr. President, we're in recess. Tensions have been high between Correa and the council since he survived a recall vote called by the council which followed a federal indictment alleging wire and tax fraud. This standoff over a city beautification effort proposed by the mayor ultimately ends the session early, with no resolution. Joe Good starts filming the scene on Facebook Live and approaches Correa. So, Mayor, what are you hoping to accomplish here? I'm just going to join in on the discussion, which is my right. I'm the mayor of the city, and there's a very important Good could have easily missed this confrontation between the mayor and the council. The short-staffed Herald News has assigned her to simultaneously cover another event happening in a different part of City Hall. Councillor Stephen Camara says the public suffers when there isn't a robust local watchdog. I think anyone who's in public office sometimes has a love-hate relationship with the press, but... um, You know, the media and the press is very important in the functioning of government and the functioning of our lives. Camara estimates the number of reporters covering Fall River from all outlets is about a third of what it was 15 years ago. Newspapers across the country have been cutting staff for years, and there's no end in sight, says Elizabeth Greico. She's a senior editor at the Pew Research Center. If you look at the trends that we see in the various kinds of data, it is very likely that next year is going to be another bad year. Assuming the Gatehouse-Gannett deal goes through next year, the combined business would include daily newspapers in almost every state, more than 250 altogether, including the flagship USA Today. The companies declined interview requests, and Good said Gatehouse wouldn't let her speak on the record. But on an earnings call with investors, Michael Reed, who will lead the joint venture, touted a commitment to local reporting. I believe the combination of these two leading local news, media, and marketing services companies will transform the landscape and better position our combined company to not only preserve, but actually enhance quality journalism. Enhance is not the word Dave Souza would use. Now, I'm going sh- to play a video for you, the thing I was telling you about. Souza was the last staff photographer at the Herald News. That is, until he was laid off last week, along with the paper's sports editor. He says six journalists have been let go since May, bringing the newsroom staff down to single digits. At his home, to underscore the recent attrition, he cues up a staff Christmas video that he produced a few years ago. He's gone. He's gone. She's gone. He's gone. And Jack's gone. That's what's happened to the paper, unfortunately. I've been cutting it and cutting it and cutting it. Naturally, Souza considers this a tragedy. What else would a journalist say? But how about the indicted mayor? Correa might stand to benefit if the Gatehouse-Gannett merger leaves fewer eyes on his administration, yet he says he doesn't want that to happen. Of course, sometimes I feel there are certain reporters that have a bias, and I think every politician feels that way. But it also reminds me all the time about how important, when they do report something that I maybe don't want them to report in the way that they do, uh, how important the press is. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Callum Borchers.
Coming up, seals make great food for sharks and fishermen don't love them. So what's being done to control the booming population on Cape Cod? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. The Vineyard Wind Project is planned to be the first large-scale offshore wind power farm in the U.S., because it could be the first, it's being watched very closely by proponents who think that offshore wind could be the key to unlocking renewable energy potential in the Northeast. But as we've been covering on our program, there's a lot of concerns, many of them coming from the commercial fishing industry. Now, final approval of that project is being delayed for a year and a half because of those very concerns. Nadine Sabai of the Publix Radio has been following this story closely, and she joins us now. Nadine, welcome to Next. Thanks, John. First of all, explain what Vineyard Wind is and when was it supposed to be built? So Vineyard Wind is the first large-scale offshore wind farm in the United States. It's a really big deal. So it was supposed to be, or it is supposed to be, an 84-turbine wind farm 14 miles off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. And it was supposed to begin construction at the end of this year. The turbines were supposed to be up within the next couple years. That sounds like a lot of turbines, especially compared to the small wind farm that we have off of Block Island. How much power is it supposed to generate, roughly? So it's supposed to generate enough power to power 400,000 Massachusetts homes. That's quite a bit. You've been reporting on the opposition to this, and a lot of the opposition has been coming from fishing groups and, and others. What exactly are they saying? Commercial fishermen, especially from Rhode Island and Massachusetts, have said that Vineyard Winds Offshore Wind Farm in particular does have the risk of displacing the fish that they rely on, either during construction, after the turbines are already built, or even when they're being decommissioned. So fishermen are worried that the change in ecosystem with this offshore wind farm will cause them to lose the very business that they rely on. But they're also concerned about uh, navigational safety, um, about search and rescue. How will the Coast Guard be able to save a fisherman in the middle of a wind farm if you have these massive turbines in the area? These are some of the concerns that they've been raising. And as we've heard in your reporting before, Nadine, one of the concerns is that the navigation could be difficult because either fishermen say these turbines are placed too closely together or they are placed too far apart. They either can't get around the entire wind farm or they can't navigate in between these various pylons. This is one of the things that a lot of the fishermen are trying to debate over. So right now, the Vineyard Wind Project, as it's designed, is aligned in a northwest to southeast pattern. Each turbine is spaced between like 0.7 nautical miles to a nautical mile apart. Fishermen are saying, um, especially those that are trawl fishermen, so the, those boats that have those large nets trawling behind them that kind of catch all the fish with the nets, they are saying that that is not a safe distance, enough of a safe distance in order to safely trawl through the wind farm. Fishermen right now are debating on what to do. Should they 
have vineyard wind put the turbines closer together so that they can just avoid the entire wind farm and just navigate around them or request vineyard wind to spread them farther apart so that they, in their interpretation, can fish more safely. So you've been reporting on this permitting delay. What exactly is the reason for this delay now and what permits are being delayed? So it was about like three weeks ago, the Department of Interior uh, newly appointed secretary, David Bernhardt, told Vineyard Wind that essentially the Vineyard Wind project would be delayed. They were expecting to get an approval of what's called like a record of decision on this project um, within the next few weeks, actually. And Secretary Bernhardt essentially said that they were going to stall the project until they could do a, quote, more cumulative analysis on the Vineyard Wind Project and the offshore wind industry that has been growing in this country uh, before they can continue to either approve or not approve these projects. That's kind of put a, a big stint in the Vineyard Wind Project now. And this delay is is bad for developers in part because the wind farm might not be able to take advantage of a federal tax credit that expires at the end of the year? Yeah. So in the case of Vineyard Wind, which is well ahead of the pack in terms of all of the other offshore wind developers that could have taken advantage of this federal tax credit, they were right there ready to be the first to really take advantage of this credit. The investment tax credit was created to incentivize the offshore wind industry to invest in something that is very needs a lot of money at the front end um, before it can actually get started. Vineyard Wind was expected to get this federal tax credit if they began construction before the end of this year, which they expected to do because they expected to get that <laughs> the project approved. But now they're at risk of losing it. And so it has caused the entire project to be in limbo, but also it has raised a lot of questions about whether Vineyard Wind can actually deliver on the electricity costs, the really low electricity costs that they promised to the three electric utilities and whether they can deliver on that without the tax credit. So now that we know that safety concerns are such a big issue that they have played a part in delaying this wind farm being built, uh, you've done a follow-up to your story about safety concerns. And it had you looking overseas where, where fishermen and offshore wind have coexisted for more than 20 years. And you decided to look at the UK. What's happening there? So, yeah, we wanted to see how fishermen and wind farms have worked together because it's kind of a a good layout to see over 20 years if fishermen and wind farms have actually been able to coexist. Let's hear Nadine's story. The United Kingdom, with just under 2,000 wind turbines in its waters, has produced a pretty remarkable safety record since the late 90s. Pete Lawson, offshore energy liaison for the UK Coast Guard, says there have been less than a handful of accidents, and it's because turbines are spaced far apart and placed in a linear grid. fishing industry, in general, has been able to uh, coexist with offshore wind. Um, Not to say that hasn't impacted them to some degree, uh, but they have still been able to coexist. They've still been able to operate in and around them safely. Lawson says fishermen there have adapted to the changing landscape. Fishermen with small boats can operate fairly well. Larger boats, however, tend to fish outside of the wind farm areas. If you introduce structures into the sea, uh, whether that's oil and gas platforms or, or, or wind farms or, or other um, you know, uh, fish farms or whatever it might be, uh, you do increase uh, the risk. That, that's that, that's um, inevitable. However, we do have done a lot of work in trying to mitigate these as as best as we we can. The fishing industry in the UK has adjusted, but it's not like there aren't any safety issues. 
Dale Rodmel is the Assistant Chief Executive for a Fishing Industry Association, which represents fishermen in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. He says trawlers, those fishermen with large boats and massive nets, are staying away from the wind farms altogether, even though they're legally permitted to fish there. They're fearful, he says, of nets getting caught in the turbine's transmission cables. And we don't yet have uh, a great deal of experience and observations for um, trawl gears operating in, in wind farms even now. There's uh, a period of, of, of learning, uh, of understanding what to what extent the activity can take place, both practically and in a safe uh, manner. This is a really important point. After over 20 years, UK trawl fishermen are still grappling with how to safely navigate within turbines, other than just completely avoiding them. But in the UK, trawl fishermen are a minority. Commercial fishing is generally done on small boats, and weather conditions are generally mild. It's a stark difference to the New England commercial fishing industry, where many fishermen are trawlers, and boats almost 200 feet in length have been observed transiting through Vineyard Winds area. The weather conditions are also more severe. So the fishermen here don't think the UK's nearly clean collision record means their safety questions have all been answered. That's the radar picture of the harbor in here. There'd be one, two, three, four, four windmills between here and, and the Redfin side. Eric Hansen has been a sea scalloper for over 20 years, built his 100-foot boat from scratch in the late 80s. Now, Hansen and his son, who will eventually take over the family business, say offshore wind farms will make their already unsafe jobs even more dangerous. Vineyard Wind, developer for the country's first large-scale offshore wind farm, plans to install 84 massive turbines in a grid-like pattern about three-quarters to a nautical mile apart. Fishermen argue that spacing isn't enough to allow vessels to safely navigate through them. It would be very... Very difficult to navigate through the through the wind race. If somebody's within a mile, you're you're really, you know, super sensitive and, and paying attention because you don't want to get any, any accidents out there. And you have a lot of other things on your mind too, as you try to try to work, catch the scallops. And if so, if something goes wrong, you have to take care of whatever hazard you have. And there is some validity to their concerns. In our first story about commercial fishermen's safety, we spoke to an environmental economist at the University of Rhode Island who predicts offshore wind developments could contribute to maritime accidents that could cost millions of dollars in damage. So fishermen like Hansen are asking Vineyard Wind and government officials to take action. They want to get the turbines spaced farther apart or closer together so the wind farm takes up less space. Eric Stevens, chief development officer at Vineyard Wind, has stood behind the wind farm's layout ensuring it will be safe for mariners. And we're trying to do the best we can to make the project compatible or at least minimize disruption with, with fishing. A fisherman's perspective, the best layout is no turbines whatsoever. We understand that, but that's not an option for, for, for moving forward on a project. Federal officials appear to be listening to fishermen's concerns. The Vineyard Wind Project has stalled because a cooperating federal agency has concerns about how the wind farm's layout will impact commercial fishermen. And the Rhode Island congressional delegation sent a letter to federal officials just three weeks ago asking them to revise their regulations related to offshore wind in order to reduce conflicts with fishermen and other stakeholders. 
U.S. Senator Jack Reed says the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and the U.S. Coast Guard have not resolved key issues, including safety around vessel transit routes. There is a situation where you do have to have space to safely maneuver, particularly in different types of weather, and then it's a technical question, which you have to rely ultimately on, on experts to, you know, what is the proper distance given sea conditions, given the likely transit routes. And that's something we, we wanted to call to their attention. Fishermen's concerns, Reed says, are valid and need to be listened to. They have very special knowledge. They are in these waters every day. These concerns have to be taken into consideration. They can't be ignored. It's a big period of uncertainty for New England's fishermen. They won't know the true impacts of offshore wind farms until the turbines are actually in the water. And it's not just vineyard wind. Fishermen, including Hansen, have concerns about the cumulative impacts offshore wind farms will have on their safety. Federal officials are already working on over a dozen offshore wind projects from Massachusetts to North Carolina. Getting our concerns heard is part of the battle. Getting them acted on is another. You can listen, but you you might not hear things. That's Nadine Sabai from the Publix Radio reporting. I'm John Dankosky. This is next. Nadine joins me once again. So, Nadine, after these delays of the Vineyard Wind Project, what exactly happens next? What are you watching for? The first thing that I am watching for is I want to know exactly what the Department of Interior wants to do in terms of this more cumulative analysis that they want to conduct on the offshore wind industry. We really haven't received much information on what that analysis is going to look like. All that we really know is that the Department of Interior says they will finish their supplemental analysis by the end of this year or the beginning early of next year. Again, I'm looking for whether or not there's going to be any update as to what they're looking at. Are they specifically looking at safety or fish displacement or impacts on wildlife? We don't know what that is. So that's one thing. And now in terms of Vineyard Wind, they have hired a major lobbying firm and are now working to try and press this project through before the end of the year in order to take advantage of the tax credit, but also because they have a a line of suppliers, most of them overseas, ready to build the project now. And because of this delay, that's putting the entire supply chain at risk as well. Nadine Sabai covers the South Shore of Massachusetts for The Publix Radio, which is based in Providence, Rhode Island. Nadine, thanks so much for your reporting. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. If you visit parts of Cape Cod and the islands this summer, you'll find that they're mobbed, not just with sunbathers, but with seals, tens of thousands of seals, and everyone's got an opinion about them. To some people, they're adorable, a playful attraction that helps the ecosystem. But to others, they're a shark magnet that needs to be culled. So which is it? And what does science say about the seals? WBUR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser went to the Cape to find out. It's a windy afternoon off the coast of Cape Cod, and Captain Skip Kendrick steers a yellow and white boat full of eager tourists through the choppy water. We're going around to the right. You can see the barrier beach of Nauset up there. We're going to go try and get across the sandbar and and get in to see the seal. There are about 20 or so people on the boat, mostly families with young kids. Everyone's focused on the water ready with their cameras. As I say, we get close to them, they'll come up and see what the commotion is, check us out. And sure enough, dozens of shiny black noses with whiskers poke up through the water. The seals snort and splash, diving back under near the boat. One snorted at me. Seal sightings on the Cape used to be rare. 
Maine and Massachusetts put a bounty on them in the late 1800s, and they were hunted to near extinction. The states got rid of the bounty in the 1960s, and the federal government passed the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the 70s. Since then, Gray and Harbor seal populations have rebounded. Slowly at first, but much, much faster in the last decade or so. The tourists on Captain Skip Kendrick's boat can't get enough of the seals. But for some on the Cape, they're public enemy number one. They've destroyed a lot of the inshore fish populations. They've become a real nuisance to people, fishermen. They've attracted the sharks. And they're also, I feel, polluting the waters. This is Nick Muto, a commercial fisherman and lifelong Cape resident. I spend probably 200 days a year on the water. And the amount of seals that we see, it's mind-blowing that people can't identify that, that we have a species that is out of control here. It's true they attract sharks, but are they out of control? That's a tricky question. I think there's a huge amount of hype about the impact that seals are having on the Cape Cod environment. Sharon Young is an ecologist who heads up the U.S. Humane Society's Marine Wildlife Division. What's important to her is how many seals Cape Cod can handle. How much can the ecosystem tolerate before the resources begin to crash and the population follows it? Young says that if the seals had crossed this threshold, they wouldn't be having so many pups and their population wouldn't be growing so quickly. Of course, a lot of people don't measure things this way. How many is too many as far as humans are concerned? The environment may tolerate a whole lot more and be perfectly healthy, but we may decide we've had enough of them. Some people on the Cape have reached this point and want to start culling the seals. They're worried about them attracting sharks, which could make people afraid to come. While the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce has reported a slower rental market this summer, it says there's no data to suggest that the sharks and seals have dampened tourism in recent years. In a region so dependent on the annual influx of visitors, the concern is understandable. But Young says taking out a thousand or even a few thousand seals isn't going to change the shark situation. The beaches here might look crowded with animals, but they're only a fraction of the total population. Federal researchers report that there are hundreds of thousands of seals living between Cape Cod and Canada. Think about it this way, she says. If, for example, I kill all the squirrels on my bird feeder this week, within a fairly short period of time, there will be other squirrels because I have an attractive resource for them. So I think there's a sometimes naive notion that this is a a discrete population that we have some ability to control. By this logic, we'd have to kill hundreds of thousands of seals to make a dent. As for the concern you hear from a lot of fishermen, that important fish stocks are down because the seals are eating them all, Young says the science doesn't entirely support this claim. We know from studying scat that, that most of what they're eating are not commercially valuable fish. They certainly do eat fish that we ourselves hunt commercially. And so there is that you know, competition, if you will. But I think there are a lot of mistaken understandings about what they eat. And after they eat, some people complain that the seals are, quote, befouling the water with their waste. But a 2013 study from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute found no correlation between beach closures and where the seals congregate. In fact, some researchers think their feces actually contributes to a thriving ecosystem by providing important nutrients that plants and animals need to grow. So where does this leave us? In order to change how we manage the seals, Congress would have to amend the Marine Mammal Protection Act. While some people want this to happen, marine scientists say we need to step back, do more research, and let the results dictate any policy changes. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser. 
Coming up, gypsy moths mean death for our region's trees. It looks like they're on the decline. However, there's still a lot of cleanup to do. We'll talk about it next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. In recent years, an invasive insect called the gypsy moth has spelled doom for countless New England trees. From 2016 through 2018, it's estimated that gypsy moths defoliated more than 2 million acres of trees in southern New England. And that means now foresters have to clean up a lot of those dead trees. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, there's good news. Gypsy moth populations are finally declining. I'm driving down a road in Connecticut's biggest state forest. In the driver's seat is Dan Evans. I'm the forester for Patchogue State Forest. We're in Voluntown, Connecticut. Our pickup truck makes its way down a trail that's been closed since 2017. As we come up Fire Tower Road, you can really start to see the damage in some of the roadside oak trees here. And as we drive up the road, you'll certainly notice the fine limb material um, on the sides of the road falling out of the uh, overhead trees here. It's dead scarlet oak killed by gypsy moths, an invasive insect which in high numbers can rapidly eat up leaves and kill off trees. Usually, rain activates a fungus that keeps gypsy moth populations in check. But when it doesn't rain, gypsy moths can flourish in trees and bring with them their own type of precipitation. If we were standing in this forest in 2016 or even 2017, we'd be feeling a ghost rain on our face. That's what the foresters from the 1980s always referred to the gypsy moth evidence as, a ghost rain. You're feeling the leaf particles and the excrement from the insect coming down from the canopy. Gypsy moth numbers spiked in southern New England in 2017, after nearly two years of drought paved the way for one of the worst outbreaks since the early 1980s. As we walk, the damage is all around us. Almost all of the oak trees in this stand are dead. Damage was also severe in neighboring Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Tawny Simisky, an entomologist with UMass Extension, says Massachusetts saw defoliation numbers peak near 1 million acres in 2017. But since then, she's seen a big improvement. My hope is that in 2020, there will be very few folks, certainly in Massachusetts, with noticeable populations of gypsy moths. So my hope is that kind of we're certainly at the tail end of this outbreak. The reason? A lot of rain supercharged a fungus called Entomophaga myomyga. It's really good at killing off gypsy moth caterpillars. Back at Patchogue State Forest, forester Dan Evans says it's good that insect numbers are dropping, but work still remains. This gypsy moth uh, outbreak has really changed our work plan over these past three years, where we've been very much focused on public safety. Evans says the risk of dead trees grows as time goes on. Bigger limbs will fall, and if trees aren't cut, roots could rot, potentially toppling the whole tree. 
In Patchog, about 4,000 trees are at risk. You see that tree over there with an orange dot on it? That's one that was identified in our hazard tree assessment process. But there's still a lot of life in the forest. Evan shuffles through the brush and shows me a seedling. Our future forest getting started here. Some good, vigorous, young oak seedlings started in full sun conditions. I'm pretty darn confident that someday some forester is going to be able to manage this as a, uh, a dominant overstory white oak in this location. About 85 years in the future. But for now, Evan's concerns are more immediate making the forest safe for hikers and keeping his fingers crossed that rain continues to keep the gypsy moth in check. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Earlier this year, Vermont recorded one of its biggest landslides. It happened in the town of Waterbury in the Mount Mansfield State Forest. No one was hurt, but 12 acres of hillside vanished, and part of a popular trail and a nearby stream were damaged. Now, as VPR's John Dillon reports, the Cottonbrook slide is giving scientists a rare opportunity to learn more about its impact and to assess other vulnerable spots. To learn more about what a major landslide does to the land, water, and people around it, you first have to look downstream, way downstream. Below the Waterbury Dam, about five miles as the crow flies from the slide site, the Little River is cloudy with silt. You know, we don't really see streams with this kind of turbidity a lot, and it's even more pronounced when we, when we go up to Cotton Brook. I'm following a pair of state biologists who are looking for macroinvertebrates, the tiny creatures that usually inhabit clean, clear water. Aaron Moore uses a wide net to catch bugs that should be crawling around on the underwater rocks. He's not finding much. What you would normally see is a lot of large-bodied macroinvertebrates crawling around, like stoneflies and caddisflies, are primarily the ones that you'd be able to see really well in the net, which you don't really see any of at the moment. These bugs, and the much smaller ones that Moore will look for later with a magnifier back in the lab, are indicators of stream health. They need water rich in oxygen and low in pollution. Silt can smother them or drive them away, as what seems to have happened on the Little River. Well, based on what we saw today, I think the density and richness of this site is going to be pretty dramatically affected. The scientists can't really predict how long the stream will stay this way, but considering how much sediment the landslide released, the Little River may stay murky for a while. Well, here we are. Flows are a little lower, yeah, but you can see from bank to bank all the sand and gravel that's been deposited here. Closer to the landslide site on the other side of Waterbury Reservoir, Cotton Brook flows with the color of cappuccino. The silt in this stream is so thick, you can't see a quarter inch below the surface. And the bug life here is even more effective than on the little river downstream. Pretty hard to get the, get the particles out. Are they in there pretty good? Yeah, the cobbles are pretty locked in there by the sediment. Hard to pull them up out. Biologist Jim Deschler tugs at rocks stuck in the concrete-like sediment. His net comes up empty. Doesn't leave a whole lot of space for the bugs to uh, to live in the substrate. And you can't even get the rocks out of the substrate. No space for anything to live. About 250,000 cubic meters of material slid down the hill, with about 100,000 cubic meters ending up in the brook and the expanding delta downstream. Still lots of coarse gravel and cobble. Geologists want to know if more is coming. Hi. Hi, Marcia Gale, state geologist. Nice to see you, John nice Dillon. We meet Gale for the short drive up a closed road to the slide site. If you look through the woods right here, John, yeah. you'll see the clearing 
Wow. Yes. Wow is right. The forest is wiped clean 100 meters up the slope. Way up the slope, small sections of hill hang almost in midair. Trees are toppled at the base, and a huge mound of earth has dammed the stream and created a little pond. So what triggered it? Don't we wish we knew? Why it failed at that moment isn't known, but Gail says you can blame it all on ancient glacier lake Winooski. Some 14,000 years ago, a large lake covered a vast area of central Vermont. When the lake and its streams and deltas drained, they left behind a mix of sediment up to 1,100 feet high up the hillside. Thick layers of sand and gravel overlay fine, silty clay, often on steep slopes, and that clay is slippery. Last spring, the ground was extremely wet from rain and snowmelt. Gale says gravity and the lack of friction did the rest. The sediment on top of the clay began to slide. And then once it happens in just one small place, the right set of conditions, the overlying weight, the right amount of water, the right angle, once that starts, it then just propagates. If geology is the study of the earth across billions of years, the Cotton Brook slide is change in real time, Vermont's version of an active geologic event, like a volcano or an earthquake. Where you guys are standing right now, we were out here one day standing on that, and it felt nice and solid. But as you stood there long enough, it started going, right, 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 becoming a little soft. And then it became soft enough that it broke and mud started oozing out. So you might want to come this way. <laughs> With that gentle warning, we quickly moved. The state is working on a statewide landslide hazard assessment so Gail and her colleagues are keenly interested in what happened here and why. And so something like this certainly provides an example of what could happen in some of these areas that we're identifying and the importance of having a statewide landslide hazard map because failure tends to happen where it's happened before. Those are the unstable areas and they tend to stay that way. Glacier Lake Winooski stretched west from what's now Richmond, south and east to Williamstown, with lots of fjord-like fingers cutting through the hills and mountains. So there's potential for other sites to have clay and sediment built up on steep slopes. This sort of thing in a populated area would uh, have been pretty tricky. While Gail and her colleagues assess the hazards, state land managers are dealing with other, perhaps more immediate concerns at Cotton Brook. Foster's Trail, a popular hiking and mountain bike route, was severed by the slide and is now closed. Walter Opazinski, a land use specialist for the Department of Forests and Parks, worries that even though the area is closed, people may try to backcountry ski or hike the exposed steep slope. We're at the point where we're trying to think through all those management concerns, come up with uh, different options that we can implement in the fields. We're making recommendations based on data that we've been getting from the geologists primarily. But that is one of the concerns, you know. Another concern is that precipitation increases from climate change, other water-soaked hillsides could become unstable. Gail hopes to tap the public's eyes and smartphones to learn more about landslide sites statewide. They're asking people to use a state website to help build the database. Just take a picture, give us an approximate location. If they're on their cell phones, the app will locate them. 
and they can just put a point so that it helps us find the landslide. Meanwhile, this landslide is still moving. Gail expects the area to stay active for several years. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. We're going to end our show with a memorial that is more than six years in the making. Stones representing the three people killed in the Boston Marathon bombings were installed this past week on Boylston Street, completing the memorial to the victims. WBUR's Alex Ashlock was there. Sculptor Pablo Eduardo was selected two years ago to create the memorial for 8-year-old Martin Richard, 23-year-old Ling Zee Lu, and 29-year-old Crystal Campbell. Eduardo watched today as the stones honoring Richard and Lou were installed near where they were killed on April 15, 2013. They each represent each of the victims, and they're twisted together to give it the significance that this experience is the one thing that will always keep those three people together. The stones came from Franklin Park, where Richard used to play, and Boston University, where Lou went to school. The third stone for Campbell came from Spectacle Island, where she did volunteer work. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alex Ashlock. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program was produced this week by Robin Doyne Aiken. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia, and the executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had music this week from Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Publix Radio.